Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to invite Robert Ficino, the founder and president of the Vivos Group, a global underground shelter network. And the reason I've invited him to the show is that I feel that with so many prophecies out there in the Bible, with the Hopis, with Nostradamus, with Fatima, with the kind of earth changes that we are experiencing all over the world, the potential of a pole shift, of electromagnetic pulse energy, nuclear war, perhaps our paradigm about safety, about shelter, about housing could expand and open up. Real estate is now being developed commercially, but it has been developed underground for over 50 years in deep underground military bases. We're going to invite Robert to talk to us about the work that he's doing, the challenges they have, and why this underground global shelter network is so important. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Robert Ficino to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. When you first go to your website, terravivos.com, it really does look like it's something to be afraid of, and it does look a little bit like we better start preparing now. What is it that led you to start this underground shelter global network? Um, well, let me uh, respond to you the first part of your comment there. Of it looks like something to be afraid of. You know, we took a great deal of care with this website not to fear monger or to foster fear, but really just to present the facts that are already out there and to do it as graphically and as um, uh, explicitly as possible uh, without adding any fluff to it, because uh, we certainly don't want to be accused of fanning the flames of fear, um, which unfortunately are already out there. We're not creating the fear. Uh, I don't know if the media is doing it or just uh, the circumstances that we now face in the world uh, and or things as old as the Bible. But for whatever reason, people are very concerned right now. What, what caused me to proceed with this project is um, just that, that the, the time is right. And uh, I've sensed since 1980, when I first envisioned the project, um, or I had a, a, let's call it a, I had an inspiration to build a shelter uh, underground for a thousand people. And what's interesting is that I wasn't a religious person. I had no knowledge of Nostradamus or the Mayans or anything at the time. But somehow I got this inspiration. And I was in a totally different business. I was in the advertising business. And, um, and it was a strong uh, determination, which uh, caused me to start looking around for an underground mine, like an abandoned gold or silver mine, or cave that could be converted, and I quickly realized that is not feasible unless you're the U.S. government with an awful lot of money to, to convert and reinforce one of those um, uh, structures. So um, anyways, over the last 30 years, I've uh, transitioned from that original vision to what we're now doing, which is we're building them. And uh, uh, I really didn't get this into gear until about three years ago, and I don't know, maybe Mr. Obama had something to do with that. But uh, What do you mean? What do you mean? Explain <laughs> it. <laughs> well, it seemed that as soon as he got in, uh, the, fear, the fear factor went up. Uh, I know my own personal did. And, uh, you know, I could, my sense of uh, what I was reading around the world was 
um, that uh, there is a great deal of concern uh, because now, well, they're, they're concerned about our leadership. They're concerned about our political position in the world. But, you know, of course, he didn't create 9-11, and that was already out there. You know, I, I, I kind of chuckle at people say, that think that what I'm doing is, um, uh, is unnecessary and, uh, and even crazy uh, because the, quote, Cold War is over. And, uh, you know, they, they think that that's it. That was the only reason that anybody would ever need to go to shelter and that shelter should exist was because of the so-called Cold War. You know, but today, um, I don't know, the Cold War is over, but the Holy War isn't. And uh, uh, Mother Nature could care less whether it was a Cold War or not, that, you know, when she creates the next uh, earthquake, tsunami, or the cosmos uh, sent us that uh, mega asteroid of which they're out there. And um, just last year, there was two large asteroids that passed uh, the Earth within the... Um, the distance of our uh, satellites, uh, which means there were very close calls. Uh, any one of the two, uh, had they hit Washington or New York, would have uh, devastated it and uh, would have been equivalent to a 25 or 50 uh, uh, kiloton uh, nuclear device. And uh, so the stuff's out there, and we don't even know where it's at. Um, they didn't spot and uh, uh, see those two asteroids until nine hours and 12 hours, respectively, uh, before they passed. So, um, you know, there's things that are way beyond our control, and and really um, nobody knows when and if something's going to happen. And so what Vivos is all about is we're building for not 2012, or let me even back up, not 2010, 11, 12, or 2029 when the big asteroid is due to make a very close call on us. That's the one called Apophis, which is about 1,200 feet in diameter. It's an Earth killer. But uh, we're building for whenever, whenever we need shelter. It's kind of like you buy a um, fire extinguisher and you have it in your home or your office, not because you expect the fire to start on Friday, but because, you know, you just never know. And uh, it's a good thing to have, and you hope you never have to use it. But if you do, it's, you know, you don't want to have to be running down to Home Depot to, find, to buy a fire extinguisher after the house is uh, caught on fire. And so that's the same thing with Vivos. We're selling a form of life assurance, which means the assurance that you will survive uh, most of these uh, uh, predictable catastrophes because you'll have a solution and a place to go um, given enough notice. Sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll tell you, several months back, I interviewed some experts in the area of EMP, electromagnetic pulse, and also about the grid and the real state of our grid. And there are some really practical things in what you're saying, in the larger scope of it, that really could happen at any moment. And most of us, we don't have that kind of knowledge and information about EMP or about the state of our grid and how antiquated and stressed our grid is that we really aren't prepared. And so, no, you, know, you know who knows is the government knows. Yes, those, absolutely. Those that are. Uh, probably uh, like your listeners that have taken the time to listen to media like this and to do their research, the, the, the majority of the masses are just oblivious. They think the sun will come up tomorrow and everything's going to always be the same. And uh, Mr. Obama is going to keep printing money and everything. You know, we're never going to have that financial crisis. And um, they're going to be able to go to work and get a paycheck tomorrow. And, you know, I don't mean to be political, but um, that's a very naive um, view of life. Um, 
And uh, what they don't realize, and their memories are short, is history does repeat itself. Uh, you know, 70 years ago, we had World War II, and many think that we're about to have World War III. Um, you know, to say that, uh, you know, the, the, the most Europeans were living in bunkers 70 years ago to survive, and today they, uh, they, they laugh at it. So, um, yeah, EMP is probably the biggest threat that we face. Um, there was a report before Congress a few years ago that, um, that indicated that, be it from a nuclear device at a high altitude, or be it a uh, electromagnetic pulse or coronal mass right. ejection from the sun. Right. which is going into a solar maximum yes. in 2012, yes. 2013. Yes. Yes. And many believe we're going to get hit. NASA's made uh, announcements that it's going to be a severe one this time around. And, uh, you know, one uh, coronal mass ejection, solar flare, can ruin your whole day uh, to the extent that it will wipe out our electric grid if it's strong enough. And uh, people say, well, that's never going to happen. I mean, you know, we haven't seen anything like that in, in our time. And I guess they, they haven't done their research because there was a thing called the Carrington event in 1857, I believe, where a solar flare hit northern Europe and it took down the Internet of its, of its time, which was the telegraph office telegraph system. And it actually started fires in telegraph offices as well as it started fires on fences, fence posts in the middle of farmers' fields. And you would wonder, why would it start that on fire? Well, because it had uh, wire in the form of barbed wire that uh, conducted the electromagnetic energy back to the post and caused the fire. So that's how severe and how strong it was. But that's the wiring we had back in 1857. What would happen today? The wiring in your house, um, the entire electric grid, your car, planes, maybe even your pacemaker – uh, will go kaput, and it's not like you can flip the switch and everything's going to be fine. We'll just flip the fuse and we're back in business. When these things go, the transformers are blown out and burned out, and there are a few transformers out there, the mega ones in the United States, for example, that they don't have a backup supply of. They, they, they can take as many as, a, as long as a year to make under normal conditions, so we could be out of commission for five, ten, or longer years, and here's what will happen. It's not that we're going to die from that electric uh, magnetic pulse. Um, our body is uh, pretty much uh, you know, uh, immune to it, but in, unless it brings radiation with it from a, uh, a coronal mass ejection, and that's another story. Um, but what will happen is it'll take down the grid, which takes down our way of life, puts us back into an 1800 society, and uh, you're going to find immediate anarchy. And, it, and, you know, there's a saying that we're three days away from anarchy. And what that means is that's how much right. food people have in their pantries. Right. And after three days, your neighbor next door, the housewife with three kids, is going to do what she has to do to help her family survive. And people will become the biggest predators, um, you know, on earth, and they will do ugly things. Um, some will take advantage of the circumstance and start rioting immediately, you know, a la Los Angeles, Rodney King, and other incidents. Um, you know, what happened in Haiti recently after the earthquake, within three days, there was uh, gangs going, roaming the streets with machetes. And so it's just human nature that, you know, certain 
group of us will, you know, become ugly and uh, uh, take advantage of the situation. But be it all as it may, um, once the event happens, you've got three days to find a safe haven. And what Vivos is under that circumstance is a modern-day fortress or citadel like you'd have in Europe. In the old days, we're the castle with the wall, even though we're underground, our 200 to as many as 2,000 members that will be located in one of our facilities will be able to ride out the storm, the social storm, for up to a year uh, with all the food, fuel, water, uh, clothing, medical supplies, medical facilities, security devices, etc., to the extent that they will, not, they will be able to hold their ground and, uh, and, and survive while the rest of civil, civilization frankly, will kill itself off. Uh, that's what the congressional report indicated, that 90% of the population will die off in a true anarchistic situation. In the context of deep underground military bases, can you share, just as a frame of reference for listeners, the fact that these bases have been built for over 50 years and explain a little bit about them? Uh, all right. Well, you know, the... Um, the notion of a of a bunker or uh, of a shelter for uh, back in the World War II days as uh, being something that's uh, uh, basically a hole in the ground and very ar- archaic um, uh, is, is not true. Today, they're state of the art uh, cities and uh, that are, are vast and and provide for thousands of people. Um, there was one that was that was revealed and uh, disclosed by the Washington Post, a reporter ran a story on it back in 1990. It was in Virginia at the Greenbrier Hotel, and underneath it um, there was a secret uh, shelter for uh, members of Congress. And uh, so once it became revealed, um, apparently it was, uh, once it was outed, it was no longer a viable shelter. So that shelter was retired and converted to a museum. And now I guess you can buy a ticket and go through it as a as a tourist uh, and see what that shelter of its day, which means back in the 60s, um, what it was like and, and would have been like to live in there. Um, but it makes you, um, you, you have to connect the dots and realize that if they uh, retired that facility, they've got another facility. And uh, it's going to be bigger and better. Um, and, and that doesn't take a lot of imagination. Um, we have reports from our engineers and architects that are also involved in designing shelters for the government and uh, in the build build out of those that there is a vast network across the United States um, that has has been paid by your listeners and me, our, you know, with tax dollars. Unfortunately, we will never uh, see one of those shelters. Uh, we'll never enter one. We'll never even know where they are um, because it is on a need-to-know basis. They're that top secret. Uh, the existence of them, the location of them, the details of them, uh, and so on. And so, you know, who are they for? They're for the government and the government elite. And unless your name's on that list, you'll never, you'll never know. Um, and why are they there is probably the bigger question. Why have they built uh, shelters? Of, give you an example. We got a report from... Uh, I won't tell you the sources, but they were government sources that there was a shelter in the New Mexico area that was uh, a thousand feet down, able to accommodate 2,500 people. 
It even has vehicles parked inside in, in large garage facilities. And uh, in that particular one, they indicated they had an earth boring machine, one of these things that uh, bores giant tunnels. Yeah, tunnel boring machine. Parked inside the shelter uh, so that if the shelter becomes further buried, the access uh, entrances from uh, some kind of new deposit of earth maybe, uh, which might be from major tectonic plate changes from an asteroid, who knows, they can bore themselves out and blast their way out. And this is the way it was described to me. Um, and this particular person uh, managed to get his name on the list, um, something to do with the, uh, he was connected with the computer uh, group that ran the systems, and somehow they were able to get their name on the list. So he was giving me some insight, and we've heard a lot of that. Um, I've also heard that the government knows that something is coming and that uh, they've been preparing for years um, with the shelters. As you say, 50 yeah, over 50 years they've been preparing. Correct. And over the last 10 years, they've been feverishly, intensely preparing. And here's why. Um, whatever they believe is coming and what they're preparing for must be completed. The preparations must be completed before the event or before the, world, the rest of the world knows it's coming. And the reason is that once uh, the world was to find out, let's say that you... Kim had absolute proof of something happening in our future, uh, what it was and when it was going to happen. If you were to go public with that and your proof was absolute and undeniable, I don't know that you'd live to see the end of the day because the government would not want that information out. And here's why. The minute that information gets out, the world stops. If we all knew for certain that on a certain date something was going to happen, you would stop going to work, stop paying your bills, stop abiding the law. What are they going to do, put you in prison when the world's going to end? Um, and you'd have total chaos. The world would melt down. Those that may already know, um, the government meaning that this event will happen, would, uh, would probably have to go to shelter sooner than later. Thus, their lifestyle has changed. Um, but also, you would no longer have an ability to prepare because everything would be in chaos. You wouldn't find sources of supply for food, freeze-dried food, and all the systems. So if you thought, geez, we got three years' notice, I'm going to go out and build an underground backyard shelter, it's too late. It all has to be done beforehand, just like you have to have that fire extinguisher before the fire starts. You're familiar with the Doomsday Seed Vault in Norway, correct? Yes, I am. When that was produced, I mean, I understand it as a way to protect what's here, but it bothered me. Why was it put in Norway? Why was it done? What is that about? And so that's something obvious that is being prepared for. Right. And that was paid for by governments as well as Bill Gates. He was a major contributor to it. Um, it is completed. It is filled with... Um, uh, basically every seed uh, on Earth. Um, it's um, deep in a mountain. It's got a natural temperature to preserve. Um, and, uh, and there is a small staff that's uh, maintaining the facility. But you're right. Why was, it, why was that site chosen? I mean, it's already in the edge of, of oblivion. And um, 
Could it be? Well, I don't want to scare your neighbor, your your audience uh, too much. Well, if the polls did shift, there you go. That's one of the reasons I was told that it's good to look for stuff in the Arctic and Antarctica, in Norway, like that area, Greenland, et cetera. It could very that could very well be the new uh, equator, and um, uh, so uh, you know, you know. But you got to wonder. They did it. And they did it um, quickly, and they did it very um, uh, discreetly. Although you know, there's been press about it now. Um, but but why? What are they preparing for? What, um, you know, we hear from sources uh, that sell specialized equipment uh, like blast valves and and so on that are used in underground shelters, um, blast-proof shelters. That there's been a shortage of these supplies. Um, I hear all sorts of stories, you know, through my intel. And uh, it just comes to us. We don't actually reach out. Um, but with the business we're in, as you can imagine, we're getting a lot of contact from a lot of different type of people. But we hear that there's a, um, uh, a uh, telescope, uh, infrared telescope on, on Antarctica, on the South Pole. Right. Um, that is, uh, they've been flying scientists down there for a number of years, observing an object that's coming our way. And uh, many people... Um, you know, you, you, you can conjecture as to what that's about. Uh, you know, some people believe it's Planet X and the uh, fabled Nibiru, uh, the, uh, the alternate uh, sister star to our star, the dark star, um, that can only be seen in the infrared spectrum that is only visible from the South Pole. And what I've been told is um, that it is coming, and they know it's coming. It's not going to hit us in 2012. It's going to hit us in 2017, uh, between 2017 and 2019. So we have a little more time than we thought. Um, but, um, you know, there's enough things in history and in, in, um, in, in the journals that if you just look, do some research and connect the dots, you know, the Sumerians claimed, uh, or the, the, the tablets from Samaria, uh, you know, uh, point out that there was this 13th planet, and it was called uh, Nibiru. The Bible talks about it as wormwood. Uh, you know, all the prophets and, uh, of all time have referred to something in this other uh, uh, planet that comes around on an orbit that's an elliptical orbit to our universe at a 90-degree angle, and uh, it is uh, a 3,600-year orbit. And every 3,600 years it comes around, and when it does, it causes complete havoc to the Earth. Um, you know, could that be what was behind Noah and the, uh, and the great flood? Um, because the kind of earth changes and a rotation that like we're talking about would cause massive tidal and tsunamis and, um, tectonic plate changes. And, uh, uh, you know, the world would change as, as the, 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 the uh, continents, as we know it, the map of the world. And could it also be what was the you know reason that Atlantis disappeared? Um, and you could say you know those are all just fables, uh, really. And you could say, and if you want to go through life thinking it's just religious, you know, pop poppycock, and and uh, they're just fables and they're just stories they never existed. Um, well, that's one way to do it. The other way is to say, well, wait a minute. What if it, these things were true? What if the gods that they say they, you know, in the, in, the, in the ancient script that came down from the sky with wings and flames and loud noise, 
um, what if they were actually some kind of um, beings from another planet, such as Nibiru? Um, you know, that's not too far-fetched. It's right there in black and white. It's in the carvings. You know, some of the ancient Sumerian and Egyptian carvings show um, illustrations or uh, shapes of things like a Sikorsky helicopter. I mean, a dead ringer for the silhouette of a Sikorsky helicopter. Uh, another, they found a, cra- a carving uh, uh, of a small statue that was an exact replica of an airplane. You know, and this is thousands of years old, four or 5,000 years old. So did technology exist? Were there societies on Earth before ours that there's no longer a record of, but there's some evidence of that um, got wiped out 5,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago? Um, uh, you know, some believe that the Earth has gone through four uh, extinctions, and uh, the fifth one is coming. And, uh, you know, some do survive, otherwise we wouldn't have any mankind on Earth. But, you know, I'm not a a total believer to the extent that I've sold my house on the ocean in Del Mar, California. It's not on the market yet. But I am enough of a believer, and I think the best thing about me is I'm open-minded to consider all of the possibilities, don't discount anything, and say, what if? And what if any of this stuff is true? What's your solution? What are you going to do with three days' notice? Where are you going to go? If we get three days' notice, there may be some things that happen we don't get three days' notice. You know what I right. mean? And, and then you're going to say your prayer. It's going to be short, and it's going to be over. But given the choice, you know, and we hope we get the choice, um, would you want to survive? You know, and, and it's funny because I ask a lot of people that question, and they go, I don't know. I don't know that I want to be around for the aftermath. And I say, well, you're so, thus you're predicting the aftermath is going to be ugly, but it may not. You know, we may have an event that does a cleansing of the earth, but the earth still exists. The atmosphere is still there. We have a lot less population and maybe it's a a better place to live. We don't know. Um, But, you know, certainly if we're, if we have that 20 minute notice for an inbound nuclear strike uh, from either a rogue or uh, the Soviets, ex-Soviets or whoever, um, you're not going to have to worry about it. And if it's truly World War III and it's nuclear, we're probably going to be in a 500-year nuclear winter. Right. That's and, what I was going to ask you about. I mean, even a super volcano could create a nuclear winter for a long time as well. The context of being a Vivo shelter for a year would be what? Trying to figure out <laughs> how to live in radiation for the next 500 years? I mean, this is obviously a stopgap to deal with a lot of different factors that could happen, and it buys you a year, right? And also living with people in community who may be able to make their way beyond a year somewhere, right? Right. And we, we're we, let me explain why we chose a year. That's what um, I want to hear that. Yeah, our our experts, engineers, and 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 physicists, and so on that we've we've reached out to and employ, they believe that ninety nine percent of all scenarios are um, are resolved within a year and that the that you will be able to come back to the surface and and enjoy the atmosphere um certainly there's the nuclear winter that could be caused by the things we've just mentioned um but if we're going to prepare for that i don't know how you prepare for 500 years of underground life you know the the human beings can't live that that long underground without vitamin d and sunlight you know, we would we we would look like some kind of zombies, I think. So, nor nor would I think I want to live that long. 
So what we're preparing for is 99% of the potential disasters or, or envisioned catastrophes. Um, but, you know, there's one that we really aren't preparing for because it's impossible to stock five, 50 years worth of food um, or 500 years worth of food and fuel. Um, so at that point, you have to be totally self-sustaining with, uh, uh, you know, your ability to grow your own hydroponic food and so on. And we do, but we're still not saying we're going to survive 50 or 500. You know, there are others out there, and what I hear the rumor is that the government's facilities are for five years. The reason we limited ours to one is to make it as affordable as possible. Every time we add a year, we add between $7,000 and $10,000 cost per person. And the reason for the cost is we need more fuel, more food in storage, uh, and more space. And the, the major factor is the space, the cost per square foot to build even storage um, underground for these type of facilities. So we're stocking for a year. Some of the facilities, like the one we now have in Europe, is so massive it could easily be a five-year facility, and we may, in fact, uh, do that on that one. Talk about your new facility in Europe. Where is it exactly? Well, you know the old expression, if I tell you I got to... Uh, it's, um, I won't give you an exact location, but I'll No, no, you, I understand. I, I'm kidding you. Yeah, I'll give you an approximate. It's in, it's dead center in Central Europe. Um, we, you wouldn't think so. It's, um, if you, if I told you where it was, you'd say, well, that's more Northern. But if you draw a radius, uh, of a circle around that spot, you'll find it covers 95% of all of, uh, Europe, uh, the EU countries as we know it. So it's really in Central Europe. Um, it was formally built by the Soviets um, for a, um, a, as an armory for tanks and munitions. Um, they were apparently preparing for uh, the, an invasion of uh, Western Europe, uh, truly Armageddon, uh, that never happened. Uh, it cost them $200 million to build this facility. It's um, back in the 70s, uh, in the height of the Cold War. It's underneath a mountain. It's 400 feet below. In a, uh, the mountain is made out of limestone, so it was all dug out. There's five kilometers of uh, chambers and tunnels. The chambers are typically 21 feet tall and about 20 feet uh, wide. Um, you can drive a, uh, a tank or, or a truck, a military truck, through the entire facility. Um, there's a number of entries uh, blast doors that are 50 tons, hydraulically operated, um, hermetically sealed doors uh, behind that first set of doors. Um, it's got its own power plant within the mountain and another one outside the mountain. Uh, it's, uh, it's got a number of deep water wells and water uh, pr uh, purifying and processing plants. Um, this facility is so big, we just contracted for it. We're going to accommodate 1,600 people. Uh, and as I say, it may, we may stock for five years on that one. Um, that facility is going to have a hospital, a television station within, just to uh, close circuit uh, communicate from one end to the other because it's over a mile long, the, uh, the length of this facility. It's just huge. And um, there'll be an inside tram that will move people around, an electric vehicle, um, uh, sleeping quarters for 1,600 very comfortably, um, uh, there'll be a variety of restaurants and pubs. Uh, we're, you know, we're trying to do a European type brewery slash, uh, wine cellar. So people are as comfortable as possible. 
with all of the uh, medical and security devices and provisions that would possibly be needed, as well as um, equipment for after the event when they come out. Um, we have a great deal of farming equipment, uh, heavy-duty equipment, um, and, of course, all the hybrid, non-hybrid seeds and uh, so on. Another thing we're even doing is we're storing DNA samples. I was going to ask you about that. You said you had a DNA depository. What does that mean? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty basic. It's, um, we have medical freezers that uh, will hold and maintain uh, DNA samples provided to us from universities around the world. And so we're reaching out to universities uh, to, for them to send us as many samples as they can. Why? And, well, just to preserve it. I mean, kind of like the seed bank. Um, you know, if we have it, 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 at least we've got it. What, what we're going to do with it later, what will technology be able to do with it, I don't know. But our cost to maintain a, uh, these freezers is very, very little, and we think it's the right thing to do. Um, and so it's just a matter of collecting the, uh, the samples and, and having them uh, 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 deposited and, uh, and maintained. What kind of DNA are you looking for? Everything. So from plant life to uh, uh, organic or to uh, uh, you know, various species on Earth that are living, everything we can find. I don't know of any DNA we want to exclude. Let's put it that way. You make a distinction between survivalists and surviving, and you wrote a whole PDF on it that we can download. Make the distinction for us between what a survivalist is versus surviving. It seems obvious, but there's a whole mindset that makes them distinct. Yeah, there is. I, I, it kind of became apparent to me when we, early on, about two years ago, we were reaching out to the survivalist communities and some of the websites, telling them about our project and the facilities um, that we, we either have or are building. And we've got, we, we received a hostile response. Um, in fact, it was an alarming response. They were, they were almost uh, attacking us. And, and uh, I just couldn't figure it out as to what's their motivation. Where are these guys coming from? We're 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 right on the same wavelength, providing the same thing that they're they're trying to, and 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 their mantra has been saying for years. And then what we realized was we were uh, offending them. We were competitive and challenging to them. Most survivalist, and I'll describe what a survivalist is. It's a person who has his khaki clothes or his uh, uh, what are we not khaki, but uh, uh, army fatigues has uh, his his guns. Maybe he's got a an arsenal of you know a half dozen weapons. He has um, uh, a uh, armory of of uh, munitions. Uh, how many rounds? I don't know, but he might have fifty thousand rounds in his garage or his cellar. Uh, he's got all of the uh, various gear for surviving. He's got a hideout, maybe in the mountains or or somewhere that he's uh, scoped out. Maybe he's got some preparations waiting for him there. Uh, he's got uh, rice and beans and um, food supplies. Um, and he's very covert and uh, secretive. He's been training for this for years, reading all the books, belonging to all the blogs and the associations, maybe even having meetings and um, get-togethers with his federal fe feather fellow survivalists. Um, effectively, it's a religion to them. And... Uh, where we offended them was we came along and said, wait a minute, we're not about survivalism, 
which, like I say, I believe is a religion at this point. We are survivors, meaning we only have one goal, and that's to survive, not to prove to anybody what a great shot we are and, and how clever we are with our planning. Um, you know, they, those guys have been pl- training and planning for 20 years, in, in many cases, or, or their entire lives, for, for whatever they envision will be coming. Um, our people don't have to train. All they have to do is open their checkbook and write a check for admission or an equity position in the closest vivos to their home. So the housewife next door that has no knowledge of survivalism and has done no training is is taken care of, and taken care of to a point that it exceeds whatever these survivalists are training for. So let me give you an example. You know, you've got your rice and your beans and your hideout in the mountains. That's great for one thing and probably one thing only, and that's anarchy. Um, in other words, you're away from society and you're able to defend yourself from society. Uh, but um, I don't believe their hideout in the mountains and the bag of rice is going to save them from a nuclear event, radiation, um, a uh, super volcano that deposits X uh, number of feet of, of new ash on top of them, uh, or the, the, the great tsunami that comes from either an earth tectonic change or, or an asteroid. I mean, what are you going to do, shoot the asteroid out of the sky? with your uh, you know, 30-odd six or whatever you've got. So you know, it, survivalist and survivalism is a very limited um, scope of what we're talking about. We're well beyond that. We're looking for the, uh, and we're protect, providing for the true mega disaster that is going to be biblical if it ever happens and, uh, and if the prophecies are true. Obviously, somewhere deep in your heart, in your being, you sense something, aside from the fact that you're a real estate developer who sees that we're at a time of great turbulence and change where there's many things happening and change is happening fast all over the world, both with the earth and with people and systems. So on some level, you accept that something's going to happen. Otherwise, I don't believe that you would go through this. Am I projecting no. that, or is that no? True? No, you're you're exactly right. And like I said, I've I've had this uh, instinctive gut level feeling for 30 years since 1980, uh, when I was in my young 20s, and I wasn't in real estate. So, nor was I an advocate of anything really. I was in the advertising business, and so it was a very strange uh, feeling. And maybe it was a calling. I don't know. But yeah, my my gut is so strong on the subject right now that. Um, I fear that we're in a race against time to get these things built as many as we can, um, uh, as fast as we can, uh, before uh, the events start to happen. Uh, let me give you an example. There's, have you, you, you may have heard of the WebBot. Yes. Um, many have. And what the WebBot is is a, uh, a software uh, of actually 70 different programs that were dev- designed back in the 90s to look for trends in, uh, for Wall Street. And what they found was they were seeing trends in society and that uh, people were using words, keywords in communications on the Internet that they may not have realized um, they, were, they were using. And, and they found that if you connected those keywords, you could actually start to see predictions of the future. Um, it works on the basis that people all have a little bit of instinctive, 
maybe psychic ability. Yes. And, and they're using words they may not realize what they're saying, but collectively there's a message. And so it's been uh, gathering and deciphering this information for 15 years. Um, they claim that they predicted 9-11. They just didn't know exactly where. Um, but they knew something was coming and, and the magnitude of the event. Well, they're now saying something's coming in November of this year, right after our elections. They're, they're, they're um, uh, specifying November 8th, 9th, and 10th that is going to be so uh, traumatic that it's going to put us into a tailspin that'll take us six months to get our, he- our heads above ground to figure out what happened. Now, that's pretty scary. Does that mean Israel's going to, you know, nuke Iran? Uh, uh, does that mean the Third World War is going to start? Um, you know, who knows? Um, but there is some sense to the uh, um, the date. Um, maybe certain powers to be are holding off um, their actions until after our U.S. elections, because that's right after our election, the day after or whatever. So yeah, that uh, it, after, doesn't, right. it doesn't affect our, you know, politics here. Who knows? Who knows? So, uh, unfortunately, we won't have our network built by November, but we will have several facilities um, that will be completed. And right now we have about 5,000 applications from around the world, and we're processing those applications, putting people into escrow for their various shelters. Um, What does it take to open escrow? 50,000 for an adult and 25,000 for a child from 16 and under? How does well, that's it work? Our standard, yes, that's our standard price, but they don't have to come up with that money in advance. Um, we, what we uh, require is a deposit of 5000 a fully refundable deposit for a reservation. Right. And that goes to escrow. We never see the money, um, so it's at no risk to the buyer. It sits there until we get a critical mass of buyers, and uh, we then, uh, when we do, we proceed to the next step, which is we provide them with purchase and sale agreements which they review and go over all the documents and the reports and the engineering and so on, um, as they wish. Uh, and if they decide they still want to proceed, then um, that's when they fund the balance of their escrow, their funds. And then it sits in escrow until we complete the shelter. That's when we go ahead and do the complete provisioning of some of these shelters that are already built. And uh, when we do our job and we complete our responsibility, we close escrow and hand the keys over to the association of owners for each respective facility. So they, their money's never at risk. We don't get paid until we perform. And uh, during that process, they as pending owners or buyers are given the opportunity to do a walkthrough of the facility before the close of escrow. It's very much like buying a condominium or any other uh, property. It, the process is the same and the responsibility is the same. But let me point out some exciting news. Um, we've acquired a very large facility in Nebraska, uh, which I don't know if you realize the strategic uh, opportunity of Nebraska, but Washington uh, reportedly has uh, 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 cited Nebraska, Omaha, as the, as the new White House location or location for the government should uh, there ever be a problem with Washington itself. Wow, I thought that was going to be Colorado. That's interesting. Well, I hear it's Omaha. Wow. That's, that's we, but it's all in the same zone, uh, you know. Um, and no, but the, the what I hear is in fact Omaha, and we're very near to Omaha. We're uh, I don't want to give you an exact location right. north north of it, 
um, and which is away from all the targets. Uh, if you look at the target maps for potential nuclear strikes, um, there, there is an abundance of them in northeastern Colorado and southwestern Nebraska. And the reason is that's where Cheyenne Mountain is. Right, and, right. And most of the nuclear missiles that we have our sites. There's another one south of Kansas. There's another one cluster up in Idaho and Montana. So even though they're out in the middle of the remote nowhere, um, that would not be a good place to be unless you're extremely fortified. Um, I understand that's where President Bush was taken at 9-11 was to um, uh, Cheyenne Mountain, to NORAD. Um, and he ran operations from there for a short stint. Um, but we're on the other side of the state, and uh, we think it's, a, it's the central United States. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much geographic center. Um, but here's the good news. Because this facility is so large, we're going to accommodate 1,000 people there. Uh, that's one person per 100 square, square feet. And we've reduced the price on that specific facility to $25,000 per member. Uh, man, woman, or child. Um, so that's cutting the cost in half, and that's about as close as we can get it. Are you saying that construction begins when there's enough people that have committed to that particular area? Is that Correct. what you're saying? We, well, well, let me explain. We yeah. will build shelters anywhere on the planet when we get a critical mass of members ready, willing, and able to proceed. Um, we cannot build them on spec in advance of knowing that we've got real buyers uh, committed in escrow. And so our task is to find groups of 200-plus people in each location. Our smallest facility accommodates 200 people. Um, the one in Nebraska is already built. It's fully turnkey. It's fully operational. Does that mean it's already filled up? No, it's, uh, it's built as a, as a shelter. We have not gone in and done the retrofit, which is minor, um, adding of uh, furniture, fixtures, uh, equipment, uh, food, fuel, and supplies. So we haven't done the, think of it as this, as a, think of an office building that's already built uh, and you have a vacant floor and a tenant comes along and says, we want this and that, and you have to go in and then just build out the tenant improvements. Um, so we have our shell, we have a fully operational shelter. Uh, it is nuclear blast proof. It'll take a 50 megaton blast within 10 miles. Uh, which should never happen because it's not in a strategic, you know, targeted area. And uh, so at this point, we don't have to do an awful lot. That shelter could be ready in as little as three months. And so we're putting people in escrow. We're filling up the, uh, uh, you know, the critical mass at this point. And once we hit the uh, break even, we go ahead and proceed on that one, which which will happen pretty soon. It's it, just to give you an idea. Uh, we had we sold 26 shares for that shelter yesterday. Got right? it. So th that's huge. One one individual bought 20 for himself and his extended family. Um, so you know, wealthy individual. He was all cash, no questions asked. Um, but uh, you know, we're we're trying to focus as many people as many people to that side as possible. Get that one done. That is effectively this the U.S. version of our European. Uh, shelter that I mentioned a, a bit ago. Fantastic. I noticed you also have a shelter in the Mojave Desert and in Barstow. At least one's being prepared for, correct? Well, it's in similar condition. Um, that one's smaller. It's the smallest of the network. It only accommodates 132 people. Um, and, you know, it's not in the most ideal location, meaning it's in the desert. 
but it's uh, very strategic. It's about halfway between Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And unfortunately, I, I, I know you live in Southern California as I do. Um, you don't want to have a shelter underneath ground zero, which means you don't want to be in greater L.A. or greater San Diego. Right. You, you have to be away. You have to be 100, 150 miles away. And if we go 100, 150 miles you know, east, we end up in the desert. And um, so we, we, we don't want to be any further than that um, you know, from a, uh, a convenience point of view. And, th- and that's where most of our shelters are located, within 150 to 200 miles of the major metropolitan area they serve. But those shelters, because they're smaller and uh, different type of construction, those are going to cost our members more than the Nebraska site. Who do you think the optimal clients are for this venture, for this kind of preparation? Who are the people that are buying in your experience so far? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's your neighbor next door, probably. Um, we, uh, we and I don't mean to be facetious or sarcastic, but it's, it's average people. It's not the elite. The elite already are on that government list or have their own shelter that they've paid for. I'm sure Bill Gates has one or more. Um, th- what we're doing with, fr- with these shelters is selling them fractionally with what's called fractional ownership. Uh, therefore, we're taking a $10, $20 million structure. We're dividing it by the number of, of owners to be. And uh, by sharing the cost, we, make it, we bring it down to a very affordable price. You know, if I told you that uh, your neighbor had a small underground shelter in their backyard, um, nuclear blast-proof, you know, leftover from the Cold War or newly built, you would you wouldn't think much of it. You wouldn't. You probably wouldn't think they were uh, uh, extremely wealthy, um, and yet that structure is going to cost them a quarter of a million to half a million dollars for anything decent, anything that's not just a uh, uh, you know a buried uh, septic tank or uh, storm shelter, um, and uh, you wouldn't think much of it. Well, what we're selling at $25,000 a head in Nebraska, for example, a family of four, which, pardon the pun, is the perfect nuclear family, you know, a mother, a father, and two children. <laughs> uh, um, the nuclear family would be accommodated for $100,000, which means you couldn't even build one in your backyard. So it, it's not the elite, and it's not the wealthy. Who it is is the people that are open-minded, informed, uh, reading the tea leaves, and believe that there's a greater chance than not that something's ahead in our future, and they want to survive. You don't merely mean reading tea leaves. You mean tuning in, don't you? Yeah, I'm saying that reading the, new, the tea leaves of uh, the news reports and uh, you know everything that we're, we, we know is happening around the world. Um, not, not literally. I know what you mean. I just want to know... I wanted to know what you meant by it. It's a metaphor. Yeah. But let me also say that um, if you had to pick a and describe the person, I would say they're conservative. Uh, they're uh, versus liberal. Um, and we're seeing a real divide there. And, uh, uh, and I guess the reason is that liberals, A, believe that the government's going to take care of them as they always have, and uh, that they're, you know, they'll show up at the doorstep during anarchy and, and uh, protect them, you know, the police will or the government will, and uh, that there will be food supplies and, you know, all the kind of things you, see in, you saw in Katrina. Um, and yet what we're seeing, and I think the conservatives are seeing, 
is that the events that we're talking about are going to be so devastating, those police and firemen and military people aren't going to be showing up to work. They're going to be home protecting their own family. In fact, um, 30% of our members are either active duty or retired law enforcement or military members. And, you know, that, that's, that's amazing. In fact, I got a call a few months ago from a, from a uh, black ops uh, special forces, I guess, guy from Afghanistan. And he called me on a Saturday morning. I don't know how he got my cell phone number, but he did. And he said he wanted to um, buy some shares in Vivos. And I said, why? You're, you're in the military. You've got all the protection you need. He goes, yeah, but I'm here and my family is there. I'm concerned about my family back in the United States. You know, what, what we hear is that they know, um, but they really can't talk about it. They know either instinctively that there's risks, and they know how government is really not prepared. In fact, here's a scary thought that I heard from one of our members talking to one of our uh, selection committee members the other day, uh, that they were um, uh, somehow involved as, as one of the security people in one of the, the large prisons in California. And they, uh, the instruction that they have, standing instructions is, that if we have a total meltdown, a major event like we're talking about, they're instructed to shoot every single prisoner in the head. That's scary. All right? Meaning they don't want those people roaming the streets. And that's a standing order. That is chilling to hear that. It but, is chilling. But, it is chilling. It is chilling. But it tells you the degree of the planning that is already uh, in place by the government. So, um, you know, if they're going to have uh, provisions, uh, uh, you know, written or instructed to that degree, you know, you've got to believe that they envision things can happen. And anybody, again, I'll just keep saying that doesn't understand this is naive and they got their head in the sand or in the ground. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it's the, that sand is not going to protect them from the whatever's coming. It's not deep enough. I want to address one other thing about the one year. I totally understand why you put together the one year to be in phase with that's how long it usually takes to be able to survive a terrible event and then to come out and deal with whatever's happening. But after the one year, let us suppose that it's not enough for some reason. Can people buy more than a year or is it just that some facilities won't be provisioned to be able to handle that? It's purely a matter of provisions. And um, so it's, it's, it boils down to how much food and how much fuel can we store. Now, we have hydroponics in every single facility that are growing food on an ongoing basis. Right. And so when we say a year, that's really what we're, what we're stocking for. But, you know, through rationing and through good, uh, you know, uh, fuel management – and, or energy management and harvesting of the of the uh, food that we have on the inside, and of course, who's to say how much of the population within the facility will survive? Um, Why is that? Well, you know, do they come in sick? Do they die off through attrition and naturally? You know, because we have people of all ages. Um, you know, we're talking about a catastrophic event, so they may have come in injured. Uh, even though we're going to have a, an urgent care and medical facility and I should also mention another third of our members 
are coming from the medical uh, field, meaning doctors, surgeons, psychiatrists, nurses, uh, EMT professionals, and so on. And uh, so the best we can do, the best care we can possibly give, I mean, you're going to have the experts right there, the professionals, but people will die. But on the other side of the coin, people will be born. Either women will come in pregnant or what are you going to do for a year underground? Uh, you know, we've, we've had, uh, you know, uh, we've had, listen to this, we've had women that have uh, applied and their comments say that they are young, attractive, and fertile, and they would like to be there to help repopulate the race. Wow. We call them breeders. Wow. Um, we don't ask them for a picture, and we just kind of gloss over on that comment, but it is amazing. We've had dozens of them uh, write that in their, uh, in their application. You know, the truth is there will be babies born, and uh, so we don't know what the true population is going to be. We prepare for 100%, which is in, on our prototypical facility, 200 people. And by the way, the prototypical facility is designed to accommodate not only that many people at one per hundred, but also 100 square feet, that is, but also the exact amount of food storage. What is 100 people at 100 square feet? What is this 100 square feet? Well, uh, the Red Cross says that a shelter should uh, uh, provide 40 square feet per person. FEMA says uh, a shelter should provide 50 square feet per person. When I say shelter, that's long-term shelter where you're going to be in it for more than a week. Um, And uh, so we we took those numbers and we said, well, that's nice. It's not enough. We want our people to be as comfortable as possible to survive. I mean, if you had to stand up in close quarters, um, i.e., you know, the Superdome in New Orleans, you know, look what happens. People... uh, you know, it's not a very social place to, uh, to survive. And so what we're trying to do is our, our, our whole theme is affordable comfort. We want it as affordable as possible. Thus, we're not creating apartments of 500 square feet per person and stocking food for 500 years that, that somebody's got to pay for. But we're um, as affordable and as comfortable as possible. So 100 square feet, if you were to talk to an architect or a space planner, that's about the square footage per person density that you would have in a, in a modern office, all right, an office okay. building. Okay. And, and that doesn't mean you've got a 100-square-foot room, 10 feet by 10, which is not a bad size. It just means that effectively that's your square footage, the, the population density within the shelter. And it, and it gives you an idea that it is going to be spacious, that there's going to be area to walk around. You know, we have uh, libraries, uh, theaters, um, uh, in a normal facility, uh, kitchens, uh, private bathroom showers, uh, laundry facilities, um, dining rooms, meeting rooms, um, large uh, areas just for assembly, uh, kind of like a hotel lobby with lots of comfort, comfortable chairs, and private bedrooms that, uh, you know, suites that have their own little um, sofa, uh, a little living room type area in each and every suite, along with uh, uh, beds for four people. I think I understand why you call it life assurance versus life insurance. <laughs> well, insurance provides your heirs a benefit. Yeah. Um, instead, we're providing your heirs you. Yes, <laughs> I understand. I do. We're keeping you on the planet. And, and I think that's much more important than uh, a financial. And, of course, if these kind of events happen, if you have life insurance, there won't be an insurer standing to pay off those premiums, which, by the way, you live in Southern California, as I, again, I don't have, uh, I, I have a 
7,000 square foot home that was built six years ago, Tuscan Villa, that I built, designed and built. I don't have earthquake insurance. And the reason is, my analysis is, the kind of earthquake that would seriously uh, harm this home, which was built to the current standard, would be so devastating that I don't think the insurers, the insurance companies, are going to be able to pay off those premiums. So, um, uh, you know, you're buying something that uh, is going to be for the kind of catastrophe that uh, you're not going to be able to collect on. And, and, and likewise, you know, any other form of insurance, we are the ultimate insurance. It's the assurance of your life. I interviewed Cody Lundeen some months ago. He's a very practical survivalist, actually. He's entertaining. He's very calm and poised. He's articulate. He's not religious about it, but he happens to know his stuff. But one of the things I learned talking with him was how he said that the mindset, when you're in an emergency of any kind, your mindset is so critical to your survival, aside from your temperature of your body and other things. So I think there's probably going to be a combination where people are going to have to learn, A, how they need to deal with emergencies on a mental level, B, how to take care of their body temperature, and then C, where to go for shelter, and they all need to happen. Let me uh, respond to that with, um, you know, there's people that have good instincts and know how to handle crisis uh, on 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 the moment on their uh, on their own those are the people that left the building in 9/11 the others that waited and this is another parallel to the liberal as i was saying mindset they believe they they cannot make a decision for themselves and they're waiting for somebody of authority to tell them what to do those are the people that went back upstairs when the guard said everything's fine go back to your offices so you know, unfortunately, if you're waiting for somebody to tell you what to do and you're not using your own instincts and you're not learning and training to, to, to have that mindset, you may not be a survivor. Now, to help our members, the housewife next door with a checkbook that really hasn't had any training, um, we have a, a twice a year a weekend retreat at each shelter for the owners only, for the members, where they will come and they will learn the operation of their facility they will divvy up their tasks and, and their responsibilities. Um, they'll get to know each other, meet and greet, become familiar. They'll talk and plan not only pre-event but post-event um, survival and activities and what they're going to need to do. Um, they'll learn every aspect of security. They'll learn aspects of getting there, um, the various routes, the various type of vehicles. We encourage our members to buy an off-road motorcycle that can ride um, uh, on the highway as well as off-road. Kawasaki, for example, makes a great one that the military uses and, and the police. And it can go three, 400 miles on a tank. And uh, you, you would need that for the mass exodus out of Southern California, for example, uh, or really any city. It'll allow you to weave through traffic and or to go off-road as and when necessary. But we're even going beyond that, if I can, on that note, um, mentioned we're putting together a fleet of aircraft, private aircraft, jet owners. These are the Learjets and the G1, 2, 3, 4, and 5s out there, citations and so on, that are um, contracted to ferry our people in from remote rendezvous points to the designated shelter. And they're, they're really nothing more than um, agreements that we're creating with pilots that they are willing to say yes 
and, on a, and be on a standby basis. We don't pay them anything, nor do our members pay anything. But in exchange for delivering a minimum of eight of our members, which means a plane load, uh, to their facility, the pilot is provided access to the facility free of charge. So, in other words, he doesn't have to pay 50000 in advance. Uh, he doesn't have to actually pay out anything or do anything until the moment of, you know, of truth, at which point I'm sure I don't know too many people with means and access that could get there that won't want to get there and won't want to get in. I think that's great. You've really thought this through, really. It's, thank you. It's so clever, and yet it's so pragmatic. Um, and, uh, you know, what does it mean? It means that given the opportunity, of course, there's acts of God, force majeure, as you may know in contract. Of course, of course. That could prohibit us. For example, maybe we got a no-fly zone and, and you can't fly. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, the, the air is contaminated, the winds are too strong, and there's no fuel. Or maybe it was an EMP blast and the airplanes are, you know, their electronics are burned out. So given that, then, you know, we go to plan B and, and or plan C. We, we even, now you're going to talk about creative, we even have a, we're putting together a fleet of used school buses that will have uh, off-road tires and a, a mechanism that you've probably seen that drops down from under the bus to allow it to ride on railroad tracks. No, I didn't know about that. That's great. <laughs> So uh, with these buses, they don't cost as much. They're sitting in remote locations or will be. Again, our members will go there. And should the freeways be clogged, you might be running, sitting on a freeway and look over to the side and see a railroad and this bus going down the railroad track on its way to Vivas. So um, it's clever. And we're, we're doing all sorts of things. We're also buying some armored personnel carriers from Russia. Uh, from the ex-Soviet Union. We can pick them up pretty cheap, uh, fully refurbished. They, uh, they will transport uh, 21 people, I believe it is, plus the, um, the driver, which is called the pilot and the captain. And, and the reason is um, not only will it transport them over any terrain, uh, on-road or off-road, but it also will go through water. So it's amphibious, and it cruises, I think, at eight knots per hour. Wow, which means uh, we could jump in the uh, in the ocean and you know work our way up to or down to whatever. So um, those also are are, are putting being put into the fleet, and uh, as well as uh, we're selling them to our members that uh, are wealthy enough to say, hey, I want one of those. Um, you know, it's it's the ultimate Hummer. Uh, it's what the military uses. You've seen SWAT vehicles. Uh, these are armored. Uh, they even have nuclear, biological, and chemical filtration systems built in. I mean, they're, they're the real thing. So if you want to have something in your garage for uh, the end of the world, this is the vehicle to have. So what business would you say you're in at this time? <laughs> well, so far it's been money out and very little money in, so I'm not sure I'd call it a business. Theodore Levitt asked a very good question in the marketing imagination. He asked, when the railroads were asked what business they were in, they said they're in the railroad business. But had they perceived themselves to be in the transportation business, they would have been ready and prepared for new opportunities in transportation. So in the context of that, I was just wondering what business you think you're in. Well, I think I'm in the survival okay. business. Okay. Um, I'm providing a means of survivor survival uh, to as many thousands of people that choose to be survivors. In other words, the chosen few 
are not the biblical, you know, chosen by the by God, but chosen by themselves. They, you know, you just literally sit down and choose. Do you want to buy that new BMW this year, or the new get a swimming pool in your backyard, or do you want a 21 foot speedboat, you know, which cost about fifty thousand, or do you want to buy a um, a, a, a true you know, something of great value, but which, by the way, is equitable. So, and it is real estate. It will go up in in value, hopefully, in time. So, if it, if you don't use it in 25 years, and you decide to either give it away or sell it or hand it to your heirs or whatever, that value should go up. So, it may be a good investment. Let's just put it this way: at the mo- at the if we had three months' notice, that fifty thousand dollars share will become what's the what's the term one of those credit card com- companies uses priceless. So um, you won't be able to buy it, in other words. Uh, so what business am I in? I don't know. Okay. You know, I, I, I'm in, I'm in, the, I'm in uh, abstractly, I'm in the real estate development business, but from a, uh, a cause and a mission, uh, I think I'm in the biblical, you know, survival Interesting. business. Interesting. What does vivos mean? What does vivos mean? To live. Is it Latin? Is it it's, Latin? It's Latin. It means to live. Terra is earth, so it's earth to live. Um, and believe it or not, I was, I, I've always been good with names and I was sitting in, in trademarks and I was sitting in a coffee shop and, uh, said, I need to come up with a name for this thing. And for whatever reason, within 15 minutes that, uh, you know, I processed a number of words. Um, and, uh, even what's the uh, name of one of those teas, um, Tazo tea. I was thinking of calling it Tazo and uh, which happens to be a place in Mongolia, an actual, an actual town in Mongolia, but that didn't quite fit. And this one came to me, and I, I don't speak Latin, and I, don't know, I didn't know what it meant. I went home, looked it up on the computer, and I said, oh, perfect, vivos. And, uh, and it is. It's, it's internationally uh, understood. Um, it's distinctive. I like it. Terra vivos at terravivos.com. <laughs> yep. Listen, uh, let me uh, tip you off to something else. Um, one of the concerns that I've had is that, you know, a lot of people can't afford this. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't figured out how to provide financing yet. Um, I keep telling my guys to get out there and talk to the banks, the lenders that do uh, consumer financing, meaning like credit card loans, unsecured, which, you know, there used to be a number of those lenders around. I don't know how many there are today. But to to find them and make arrangements so we can uh, effectively uh, – uh, you know, facilitate financing for our members, which will allow a lot more of them to afford this. Um, but in that note, I, back in June, said, you know, we, we ought to come up with a contest or something to allow people to get in for free um, where they can win the chance to get in. And um, so we came up with the idea for a television show, and I can tell you right now that that is in the works. And soon enough, you'll be hearing about a uh, weekly television series where families around the planet will apply online and work their way through the process, kind of like an American Idol, and eventually come to stage and to the show live where a panel of judges will ask them certain questions and the most worthy shall win. And they will win a spot in their closest vivos. And that show, hopefully, we ha- it hasn't been named yet, but hopefully it will be called Vivos, The Chosen Few. I was going to ask you about your application process and your criteria. Is it something that is going to remain close to the vest, or is it something you can share with the public? Uh, I can share. It's real simple. It's, uh, it, it, you can count it on three fingers. It's, ready, it's a first come, first serve. 
followed by ready, willing, and able. And that kind of falls back to the affordability factor. And third, followed by um, we're looking for good people. So we do a bit of screening. We we uh, they, we do a credit check. We do a criminal check. Um, we certainly qualify what they say to us on their application. But more importantly, the third fa- the third reason is our criteria is who they are and what they are. Um, we don't want to fill a facility with all doctors and no plumbers. Uh, that could be a disaster if the toilet breaks. So um, what we're doing is trying to handpick a cross-section of society. So early on in each one of these facilities, we're not as discriminate as as we get to the last few sh- uh, positions. And uh, then we start tallying, well, how many doctors do we have and how many security people and you know how many cooks and uh, so on. But effectively, what we're trying to do is build, create a community that is a cross-section of society that has all, every skill, and our application does have various boxes you check that you check off where, what areas of knowledge you have. And it could be, you could be a doctor, a pilot, a lawyer, God forbid, a, uh, <laughs> a, a survivalist, and a farmer all in one. And you could be a fisherman too. So you'd check those boxes. And, you know, what we're looking for is diversity. Um, we're looking for diversity of age. So in other words, if you're 70, we have many members uh, that are 70 plus, um, and we want them. We want that wisdom, uh, and we want young, fertile people as well. Um, we want teachers. We want artists. We need entertainers. Um, you know, and so effectively, we're creating a true cross section of society that will help each other. They depend on each other, and they serve each other once they're in that scenario. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Robert, and I hope that you will come back and visit us again, and I'll have you on with some other people in this area. And I really appreciate you being our guest today. Thank you. Um, we're grateful as well, and help. thank you for helping us get the word out. And as well, if there's anybody out there that wants to join the party from a uh, business point of view and various levels, we're, we're, we're always looking for support and help. So. Um, Kim, uh, hopefully uh, your message will be, this message will be um, heard loud and clear. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. We've been speaking with, listening to, and learning from Robert Vecino. You can find out more about this Underground Survival Sheltered Network and the work that Robert's doing at terravivos.com, T-E-R-R-A-V-I-V-O-S.com. Thank you so much. It's Rainmaking Time.